get started, I wanted to just check in with everybody and kind of give you an update on what's been going on with Sea Change. After our last episode was published, I had to make the decision to leave New York City and come to California to take care of a ailing family member. And so it has been a while, but I've been quite busy. Um, since we last published an episode, we launched an online course for educators and school leaders called Reclaiming Your Resilience, and we're about midway through, and it has just been an amazing experience. We have folks from all over the world, and the, the whole idea is for us to take a breath and take stock of what just happened to all of us and to uh, replenish and revisit our resilience and plan for a resilient practice and education for the fall. The stories that people have shared with us in our course have been heartbreaking, inspiring, even hilarious. And I look forward to sharing some of those stories with you at a later date here at the Sea Change podcast. I wanted to give you a couple of heads up. That Reclaiming Your Resilience course has been really popular. So due to popular demand, we're going to open it up again at the end of the summer, early fall. And as soon as I have a date, I'll let you know. We also are running a online experience for recent graduates of international schools who will be going to university next year. The event is called Thrive, and it is to help uh, our graduates get ready for university and think through ways that they will make friends, develop a sense of belonging, connect with professors, explore their interests and identities, regardless if they have to take classes online or in person, or if they are in a foreign country far away from where their university is, we have their back and it's gonna be a really great experience. And that starts July 27th and registration is open right now. So a lot more to come, a lot of exciting things. And we keep hearing these amazing stories from educators and our heart really goes out to all of you. It has been such a tough year, but your resilience absolutely inspires me. And I look forward to sharing more of your stories with our larger community. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. Coming to you from Surf City, USA, I am Ellen Mahoney, your host, and this is the Sea Change Podcast. Today, I am thrilled to be talking with Amanda Bates. She is an old friend of mine and the founder and creative director of The Black Expat, which is a digital platform focused on Black identity and international living. She's worked both in the K-12 side and higher education, helping young people from multicultural backgrounds transition to university, and then on the flip side, helping folks with the multicultural background transition into the right professional choices for them. Amanda and I also, back in the day, founded TCK Chat, which was a Twitter chat that was designed to discuss all matters of what it feels like to be a young adult third culture kid. And when we ran that, we had the opportunity to talk a lot about all kinds of issues that connect to the third culture life, including travel, parenting, the international school system. But we often found ourselves talking about identity. Probably the biggest theme that came up organically was race and racism. And so I was uh, really excited to invite Amanda onto this show. She's a ton of fun. I love her energy and I can't wait to introduce you to her. 
Hi, Amanda. It is so good to have you on. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Good to good to see you again. It's been a while. It has been a while. It's been way too long. Um, where are you right now? I am in the exciting location of Raleigh, North Carolina. <laughs> um, <laughs> for those who don't know, essentially, I'm in I'm in the southeastern part of the United States. This is such a wrong question to ask a third culture kid, but I'm going to ask anyway. When people ask you, where are you from, what do you typically answer? What's your response and, and uh, what goes through your mind when that question is asked? I mean, I think the funny part is you would think at this age <laughs> that I would have a solid <laughs> response <laughs> and I don't. Uh, I'm, I'm okay with saying I've had a long time to figure this out and uh, I don't think I've come up with an, with an answer yet, but you know, for the people who want a little bit about my background. I am American in the sense that I was born in the US, but I was raised by two individuals who, this term expatted, I guess immigrated to the US um, mm -hmm. in the 70s. And then when I was 10 years old, they decided to repatriate to their home country, which was Cameroon. And so Cameroon, which is bilingual English and French. Uh, my family actually is part of the English minority. And so I had the oddly weird experience. And I realize it's odd and weird every time I talk to people <laughs> that I, that my family decided to relocate back to their home country, but not the part they knew to a foreign part where they didn't necessarily speak the language. And wow. so I was this Americanized English speaking kid in this African French speaking capital city who wow. went to international school. So that makes me a weirdo. So that's, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's kind of, you know, I, you know, all the terms we use CCK, CCK, I guess expat immigrant, all of that. Like, yeah, all of the all, above. It's all there. It's Check all off. there. Yes. <laughs> what, yeah. How old were you when you moved back to Cameroon? Well, for me, remember, I moved for the first time. So my yeah, family. Or, right. Yeah. First time. First time. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, I was 10 years old. Do you remember uh, what it was like to go from the U.S. where Black people are considered a minority and then going over to Cameroon where you're part of, at least racially part of the majority, although in all the other parts of your identity, part of the minority in many ways. So do you remember what that felt like? Yeah, no, it, it was a really weird experience, I think. And I even think about this now as an adult especially when we talk about moving as someone who's identified as a person of color, yeah. is that while color is part of your story, and especially when you come from a racialized community like the U.S., yeah. it becomes real interesting how much passport and language and all those other privileges show up, right? So yes, so yes I looked like the local population, but it was very clear to a lot of folks that I had not grown up there, right? So right. this accent that I've had, whatever, I don't hear it, but the way I speak has always been a marker, right? Especially when in a Francophone setting, but then even in an English setting, right? Mm -hmm. And then even the way I, I was told the way I walked and carried myself, I walked like an American, which <laughs> could be, you know, I kind of know what that means. I'm like, I don't know if that's a compliment, <laughs> but <laughs> just sort of uh, you walk with purpose and they're like, like, you know where you're going and you have no idea where you're going. I know what you mean. I was like, I was like are you talking about that arrogant walk? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I have it. But um, <laughs> so, so as a little kid, what was hard is that very early on, I was identified as the American. 
Yeah. And, and I think there's the added challenge of you're identified as the American, but this is the country my parents are from. And so even when we traveled to where my, where my mother was from predominantly, because that's most of her people I was with, was I didn't speak the dialects, right? So then there's a, why don't you speak the, the local language, which I feel like is the challenge of almost every like TCK I've ever met who comes from somewhere where they do not speak the tribal yeah. or ethnic language. Yeah. It's like forever and ever. And in my <laughs> case, in my case, my parents were not of the same tribes. So they didn't speak it to each other. So how would, and, they're, and my, you know, they're both from small tribes. So where am I gonna learn this language in all these places I've been right. when such a small percentage of even the Cameroonian society speaks it? And so, yeah, I mean, it was very clear. I, I mean, from day one, I was other. Yeah, yeah, and definitely sort of in between places and not fully accepted or fully, as they say in the definition of third culture kids, right. without having ownership of sort of anyone in particular. Do you remember when you first heard the term third culture kid? Yeah, it was, oof, I want to say it was 11th grade. So, so, and I'm going to, I'm going to back up on a couple of things just based on something you just said. I, I think even in, so you're right. I think this inhabiting the gray, because one of the other things that kind of contributed to the othering is otherness is sort of that class, class differential. Because yeah. my mom worked at the U.S. Embassy. All right. So that's already a thing. Um, we lived in an area where most of the diplomats lived. So that's already a thing. Yes. Right. And then I went to international schools. So that's already a thing. So, <laughs> so when you intersect all of that, plus the fact that I'm American, it's amazing how much more those things become important or visual yeah. as opposed to actual race when you're in an environment where you look like everyone. Yes. So the reason I even gave that context to answer your question is that, so I was going to an international school <laughs> and I was really fortunate and it's really wild but um, David Pollack actually came and spoke. Okay. Amazing. So this was David like- David Pollack, the, the author of Third Culture Kids. Yeah. Yes. Co-author. And I, I, I'm okay with dating myself. A, this was like the mid nineties. So no social media. Yeah. Internet was barely doing anything. Yeah. <laughs> like for the general public. So there was no, you know, the book hadn't even come out. Like there, there was, this is- this Really? The, the only, the really, literally, I think the only way you heard third culture kid in that days was someone who was kind of doing the work or like someone like David Pollack who came and told you about it. And so right. I was in 11th grade and I remember we were like, who is this old white guy? Because <laughs> um, he looks like Santa Claus. No, I was dead serious. And you know, it's really wild. <laughs> Side note, I just pulled out an old yearbook and saw a photo of him in there. And no, <laughs> this is really funny. And, um, oh. So I was like, who's this old white guy? And he's talking about third culture kids. And we're all looking at him like, what is this? What are you talking about? Like, no frame of reference. Right. And I just kept thinking, this is so weird. And it's funny because at one point he said, you're not going to get it now. <laughs> but you're going to get it. To because remember, we were juniors in high school. Right. So you're really going to get it once you leave here or you graduate. And we were like, yeah, yeah okay, whatever. And then, <laughs> then of course. <laughs> <laughs> Here I am. Many, many years. Santa Claus is right. <laughs> right. Santa Claus is real and he's right. Yeah. When we first met, you were yeah. work you were helping third culture kids 
and international students choose colleges and go through that whole process and, mm-hmm. and, and that transition. And I'm wondering, based on that experience, what do you think was important in preparing them for university as it, as it relates to the racialized society here in the U.S.? So I, I think that there's just a challenge. And I think there's, there's a challenge on two fronts, irrespective if you are coming from an international school or not. Yeah. I think number one, it depends on where, and, and we're talking about the U.S. obviously in this context, yes. but, I, but honestly, racism exists everywhere. And yes. quite frankly, with the work that I do, <laughs> I got great stories from other countries. So really, I don't want to throw yeah. the U.S. completely under the bus. Right, right. Feel free to <laughs> add other countries. <laughs> um, but I think that one of the challenges is that, I think especially as a parent or an educator, you have your own experiences with a country. So especially if your child is going back to their passport country or your home country, but you don't have necessarily, if you weren't a TCK, the experiences of also having grown up outside of that ecosystem. And so I think what can be really hard is that if you've been out of it, coming back into it is really jarring. So like if I use myself as an example, I mean, you asked a really good question. What was it like going from being a minority into a majority where everyone looked around, looked like me, right? Right. And then that, so then I'm flipping it and say, okay, let's talk about coming back. As an adult, one of the things I wholly appreciate specifically in my experience is that I was really affirmed as a black person living in a black country. Like that affirmation, especially during this was during my adolescent year. So it was really formed, really solid. And I came back. Yes. That said, even with that preparation, I don't think you can be fully (laughs) prepared for, for just the amount of going back to those boxes that you get put into just based on how you visually look. Yes. And I think what could be hard for a parent or an educator is, Oh my God, how do I prepare a kid to come back into an environment that as smart and as brilliant and as talented and as, as many experiences as they have and as many languages and as open-minded or whatever you want to call them, yeah. their first, the first response that many people are going to have is to their color. That's right. Yeah. And I think that that is a conversation that from a parent standpoint, you have to have, because no matter how much you want to say, you know, I'm colorblind and all those stuff that people usually say, we don't see color or whatever. That's great about you, but that's not a lot of people. And so there are people who are going to react to your child. And so I think a lot of the onus realistically is going to have to be on the parents because I was going to get to schools in a moment because you, and, and, and here's the funny part that I find, and we'll talk about the black expat eventually, but like black parents who grew up as minorities, or have worked and lived as minorities in, in countries abroad are really good about telling their, their kids at some point, like, this is how you need, because it's a survival tool. This is not a, this is a, I grew up in Tennessee in the 1970s and 80s. This is what I know as a black man. You've, you've been living in Hong Kong and Singapore and Thailand, but let me just let you know. Right. <laughs> when, you yeah. get to, when you get to the U.S., Ain't nobody going to be checking for the fact that you grew up in Southeast Asia. They're just <laughs> going to see a black man or right. a black girl, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, and even those who come from a, um, a dip, who, who may not have been American, but grew up black somewhere else will still say, okay, 
once again, when you're walking down the street, no one's going to check to see if you're Ghanaian or Honduran or Nigerian or Cameroonian. You're still a black man or a black girl (laughs) walking down the street. So I I think that that's the case. And the other thing I'm going to say is that I'm starting to see more and more parents who have adopted black children. Yes. And so I think if there's ever a group who needs just as much support, are expats who are raising black children outside of the US, outside of the UK, outside of whatever, knowing full well that those kids may come back to the US for college or to live or whatever, and really having to have really difficult conversations about racial identity and, and still affirming who they are, but also saying, this is the reality of the world we live in. Flip it to the schools. I think schools have a hard, have a hard, it's hard for them because on one hand, you know, here's the deal. International schools send students all over the world. What the situation is in the U.S. may not be the situation for a student who's going to the UAE, right? Right, right. Um, let's be honest. Most of these students are looking at Western countries. So there has to be a little bit of an acknowledgement that as much, once again, we want to have this kumbaya, colorblind, hold hands, frolicking in the wind, we're global citizens, whatever. <laughs> yeah. um, sorry. That's I, what I it's like to go to international school. <laughs> that sounds really sarcastic. I should But, but you know what I mean? Like, I, I, because the reality is, if, if you break it down, even yeah. within international schools, there are issues of racism yes. and colorism and whatnot. We just are really good about glossing over it with privilege and money and all this other stuff. Yes. But the the reality is we don't live in an ecosystem where this doesn't penetrate. That's right. Right. And so (laughs) sometimes I even wonder when folks don't want to discuss it. And I mean, I could go on about the experience of black educators in some of these schools, but like, yeah, yeah. Sometimes I wonder when we don't want to discuss it. We also have to realize we bring our own biases and perspectives from wherever we come from. Yeah. And we don't, we don't, we don't lose them because we're at an international school. Sometimes we just don't have an opportunity to show up fully until there's a right moment. And so, you know, I think that this is an ongoing starts at the parent level, there's some school involvement, a community level kind of discussion, because truth, truthfully, the thing that would break my heart, and it always makes me concerned, are those kids who don't have these discussions, and then you get, you all of a sudden get thrown into a situation, and, and it, it never occurred to you that you know what, <laughs> there's some stuff here that I'm gonna have to know how to navigate. It makes me think about, TCK chat when when you and yeah. I were running TCK chat and yeah. race came up a lot race and racism came up a lot so much so that we ultimately ran that three part racism yeah. Twitter chat yeah. and we also had a like a online webinar conversation about it and I think when we're talking about the transition to university for international yeah. school kids you know we talk about reverse culture shock we talk about like finding your people, we talk about advocating for yourself, but a lot of the literature out there that supports the transition does not talk, at least in depth, about the racism that they may experience. And yet with the TCKs that we were talking to, those millennials, and and I know my experience, I'm I'm a white person, um, as my experience coming into the US, the racism was shocking. 
It was yeah. so shocking and, and it was devastating. I mean, yeah. and I'm, I'm not just saying for myself, but also, especially if you're a person of color, it's just, it's devastating. And if you don't, if you're not prepared for it, if you don't have the skills, and if you don't understand a little bit of the context and the culture and the history that you're going into, I just really think it causes some major transition and adjustment issues that could probably be not prevented entirely because it you know racism is always going to be right. devastating but at least be prepared to know what you're about to walk into so i think it's absolutely ironic that as much as we celebrate say we celebrate differences how much race just and ethnicity disappears from the conversation when you look at expat literature as if <laughs> so weird is, is wild to me like it is Part of the reason the Black expat exists is because it is so randomly wild to me how race just, we kind of gloss over it as if when you are a minority of any kind entering a country <laughs> and, yes. and you have to deal with people staring at you and people making assumptions and not being able to find beauty and, and skincare products or like all these other things. Yes. Um, it, and, and having to deal with the colorism within their, that own society that they may have, it, it is just amazingly hilarious <laughs> to me that we don't talk about race. And yeah. I was, as you were talking, I thought, man, so, okay, I read The Black Expat. No surprise. I think everyone who knows me knows I read The Black Expat. <laughs> yeah. I, I talk to Black folks all the time, and you were talking about TCKs, and I was thinking, man, some of the craziest stories crazy I've heard from black TCKs and so I'm thinking of one yeah, yeah where us. I oh <laughs> so I'm thinking about one woman who she was a missionary kid and her family was missionary family in Brazil had a great time and they were like in the Amazon somewhere loved being in Brazil whatever back up her father was like I want to say her father was Bahamian and her mother was a black woman from like Indiana okay so black parents black kids they were in Brazil, had a great time. She comes back <laughs> and goes to college in the United States and she goes to a Christian college. I'm not bashing it, I have friends who went to that Christian college mm -hmm. and experienced more microaggressions from folks who, number one, could not figure out, they would ask her if she was adopted because they could not believe that two black parents were missionaries wow. <laughs> abroad, right? was put in classes that would have been, you know, in college, how you have, I almost want to say remedial, like they're not, yes. you know, the classes you've got to take before and to prepare she, for, yeah, for, to prepare for whatever. Mm -hmm. Now, full disclosure, I need that for a math class because I suck at math, but like <laughs> she legitimately knew her crap, but was automatic, like it was, the classes were put on her schedule. So it was not that she picked them, right? It was, oh, we see you're coming from here we're putting you in these classes, right? Okay. And I had the craziest conversations with her because she would tell me, do you know how much I had to educate people on the history of black missionaries? Like an assumption, wow. an assumption that I had to have been adopted because there there's no, no way. way that two black, like two black people have this faith and we're doing whatever they were doing in Brazil. And, I, and it's funny because it led me to a conversation with someone else who I, I do talk, I talk to pretty regularly. And she told me her greatest challenge, um, and I can do this for everyone, but since I'm on the missionary thing, yeah. um, her greatest challenge was that her family were missionaries to a black country uh -huh. and said in, in Africa, they once again, 
she had the best time with the locals, but the hardest people to deal with were the white missionaries, the other white American missionaries. So my point being is, and honestly, you could strip this to whatever your work yeah. is. It's, it's not yeah. so much it could be any, any community, whatever. any international community. The point being is that <laughs> just because you get on a plane and go somewhere does not, A, in the second case, make you open-minded or whatever, because yeah. seriously, you need to confront your biases. But in the first case, the, the fact that you can't even fathom that Black people would do this thing and go abroad, right? And yes. so even, even our assumptions, right? And I've, I've had to deal with those assumptions when I was a TCK and even when I did my own expatting experience is, you know, often I think when Black folks say they've moved abroad, usually it's what we hear is, oh, is it military? No. <laughs> okay. And it's not even other options. It's often usually military. And so even when I, you know, I lived in Qatar and I, it, it was really weird. I was in this elevator and there were these two white men. And for whatever reason, we got to a conversation or something. And then um, I think I'd mentioned I lived in Qatar and then, you know, whatever. I got yes. off the elevator and I heard in the background, oh, she must have been in the military. Like I had what? said nothing about being in the military. I had not, <laughs> I have no interest in being in the military. They just assumed that's that's why I went abroad. And so when I still look at expat literature and it wants to pretend that race is not a factor, even with how you may be treated in a country, both by other expats and the locals, it's yeah. kind of ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's and so ridiculous. if you're not, so to me, if you're not if you're not seeing it means you don't want to see it or you're not talking to the people who are experiencing it. Let's switch gears a little bit. I want to hear about, uh, tell us a little bit about the Black Expat, but I know you're also working on a new project around TCKs. So can you tell us a little bit about, about that work? Part of the Black Expat, there are two, okay, really there are three big reasons why it came about. The first one um, actually alluded to something you were talking about with TCK Chat. So we did that for a hot minute for those who don't know. <laughs> um, so TCK Chat was the thing we did on Twitter where we really talked about all these issues having to do with TCKs. And one of the things that you've said was there were these side conversations that I was noticing as a moderator, and I know you were noticing, where yeah. they were very specific to race. So we're having these conversations, but then all these things were coming up and I could see the black and brown TCKs were like, mm -hmm. yeah, let's also talk about this, right? And yeah. so there was that added layer. Um, and so I really started the Black Expat as a way to one, continue to have those conversations that were very, very bluntly about race and we make it front and center. And then also wanted a way where we can normalize the Black Expat experience. And so Often when black migration is spoken about globally, it's either we talk about slavery or we talk about war and famine, right? Yeah. <laughs> so like, yes. I mean, let's think about it. Like yeah. anytime you hear about large groups of black people moving, <laughs> I, yeah. I, I don't know if you've heard anything positive. I mean, maybe the closest might be the folks from the islands who moved to the UK and the, you know, the wind rush I mean, no, out. normally it's like the great migration north right. after slavery or slavery right. or, 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 or famine. Or, right, right. Yeah. So, so you don't, you don't hear about just, hey, I want to move to Japan because it was there. Right. Right. What you hear about <laughs> with every other, like, oh my God, I read so many white blogs where it's like, 
I wanted to move to Bali because it was there. <laughs> Great, cool. I'd like to see a black person. And all of a sudden you can't find this, right? Right. And so I, at the time, was working at a job where I worked with 90% of the folks, students I worked with were high school students going into university. And I was trying to promote study abroad. So really thinking about living abroad. And I said, hey, you guys should do this. And they would all say, I don't know anyone who looks like me who lives abroad. So, except for military. So basically right. the black expat came to sort of say, hey, black people move and they're not necessarily American. It's so, <laughs> and it's funny <laughs> to say it, but as often as I get interviewed, it's still a novel idea. Um, I was just like, black people move. They're not necessarily running away from anything. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not, but you know, they, you know, we just did a story. So we moved to Costa Rica. Because mm -hmm. Costa Rica. Yeah. Um, and so we try to normalize it so that when people read it, yes, it's focused from a Black perspective, a global Black perspective, but it's also to give different nuances to the expat story that we don't see. Yes. So with that context, one of the things that I wanted to do, and I wanted to do it since TCK chat days, yeah. was really focus on black TCKs because they <laughs> they kind of sometimes show up in the story but they kind of sometimes don't often yeah. there's so much nuance to why and how they can move right so for example I love the black TCKs who grew up in the Caribbean or in Africa and moved somewhere because then there's an additional drama of passport privilege and trying to cross borders that you don't yes. necessarily get with the black TCK who moved from the US and Canada, right? And so there's all these and, and assumptions about who they are and why their family moved and why did your family move and, and, and being black in a different place in the place they're familiar with. I, I think that there's so much. And so we are launching this thing. It's untitled, but right now it's basically called the Black TCK Project. Okay. And so the idea is to take some of these stories and put them on film to make them visual, much with what we did with the Journey series. And it's really to let them tell their stories on camera. I'm so and excited. That's awesome. Me, well, me too. I just made a funny But I, <laughs> but what's been really cool is that, so we put a call out, right? And the call's only been out for like two or three weeks. And like, we have this form and there are two forms. If you are a black TCK or CCK, because okay. I also think with cross-cultural kids, man, like you are first gen and you grew up in yeah. a home where your mother is Haitian and your dad is black American and you're in like, you know, in the US somewhere or in Canada, whatever. There's so much of that immigrant story, which, you know, the, 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 the TCK book really talks a little bit about yes. or talks yes. about. And so we included them because often they get left out, but I'm like, mm, like there's a lot there that I think could be beneficial. But we put a call out and can I, <laughs> you know, we did two, one for if you're a TCK over the age of 18 and you have a black identity. And okay. I said, black identity. So biracial, multiracial. Yeah. And then the other one is for parents who are mm -hmm. raising black kids and, or black TCKs or CCKs. And man, from the parents, like, wow. 
just the, I, I wish I could just even read you the responses to the questions that we're, that the people have responded. Cause I'm looking at them going, these are such good stories from, from a wow. woman who was, who was never a TCK, but was adopted. She, she, I think she has a biracial identity was adopted by a Japanese mom and a white dad. What? <laughs> right? And where did she like, grow up? She grew up in the U.S. It's like a CCK story. It's, it's oh. wild. Isn't it right? Isn't it wild? It's wild. Yes. Like there's so many. And then there's the, there's a, there's a TCKs who have an African identity who grew up in like eight countries and just trying to navigate. Like, I feel like just the forms could be its own, like, cause people really thought deeply about their responses wow. and, and consistently what the TCKs have said. I've been waiting for something like this because no one ever tells our story. And so once again, when we talk about the TCK experience, like the expat yeah. experience, it so much takes out the nuances of, of race and ethnicity. And obviously I focus on those who are black, yeah. but there's so many other groups where you're not factoring that in, but that's such a huge part of how they're navigating global mobility. Yes. I cannot wait to hear these stories. Me too. <laughs> I think they're, <laughs> me too. I'm, there's some that I'm just like, I don't know what's going to happen with this. I don't even know if anyone's going to watch, but I'm going to watch it. So oh, I'm that's good enough for me. <laughs> that's good for yeah. me. But they, they are, like, I keep reading these, these responses and I'm going, you're right. No one, no one talks about being half Belgian, half Congolese growing right. up in Europe. Like no, like yeah. Because yeah. can you can you imagine? And I think especially now, as I don't know if you've seen this, but um, the Belgian king was starting to apologize. Yes, for the I just saw that. Yes, by his ancestor, whose yeah. name I will not repeat. Yes, but do you know what I mean? And and I really do. thinking thinking about as much as so much stuff can be centered around North America, like dude. Dude, like some of these TCKs in other parts of the world, I'm yeah. like, we have to figure out how to do your story because, mm -hmm. you know, no one's no one's talking about your story, and so yeah, so that's that's the current project that is on deck. As you're talking, I'm having all these flashbacks to growing up in Asia and um, going to international schools, and I just remember, I remember, and also as I work with international schools currently, I get the sense that the white adults, teachers and leaders and whatnot, are just not equipped. Like they, they don't know how to talk about race. They don't know, they feel uncomfortable talking about race because they haven't done that inner work themselves, I suppose. And so what I've witnessed both as an international school student and as someone that works with international schools is there's this kind of treating black students um, as if they're invisible. And not necessarily out of like um, direct malice, but out, out of a sort of, well, I don't know what to do with you. Like, I don't know how to talk about this with you or how to make you visible. So when you're talking about putting these stories into video form and letting us hear these incredible stories that, that get overlooked, I mean, that representation is so powerful. It's so powerful. I mean, I'm, I'm going to say something that I say the same thing with schools here in the U.S. I mean, it, yeah, it's odd and awkward, especially when you don't know how to have these conversations. But then my, yeah. my question always is, 
why is there not representation in the schools? As someone who works in education, I work in higher ed now. I did K-12, worked with K-12 for a long time. Yeah. I mean, I can even say right now, as someone who is not even working in international schools, I am a product of one, but of two actually, and, and, and not in that space. With everything that's happened recently, especially with you know the protests around Black Lives Mattering and George yes. Floyd or whatever, students of color naturally will run to the folks who look like them when they need a safe space. Yes. When they don't have people that look like them and uh, whether you like it or you hate it or whatever, or it's controversial, but when you don't have people who look like you in that space, especially when you are a minority, it's really, really, really hard to really get down to, to the depths of how you're feeling and how to process and how to talk through these things. Yeah. I, I think that if you are an international school, it's like, this is my policy, I think even for state public schools in the US. I think that often that the representation in the school, right, in the student body, should be in representation in the leadership somehow. In the sure. US, I would argue for state universities that the representation of the state should be representative in the state public universities. But I just don't understand how you're an international school and the majority of your staff is white. Why would the, and, and that if there are people of color, they are generally not in education, like in, in leadership positions or are not in administrative positions. Yes. They might be in support roles. And I get that if you're in a country and there, there are these great support opportunities, but there is also folks who can teach and can lead who are of color. And so if you're looking around and your staff is 90% white and they're from, the United States, Canada, where else? Britain and Australia. How do we talk about race? I'm like, well, first of all, <laughs> yeah. first of all, if you are a person of color, you do not get that, adva that advantage of not having to deal with it. So That's if right. you don't know how to talk about it, then yeah. you probably have not done the work to really analyze and understand. And that's, to me, kind of problematic if you're at an international school. And I've definitely had this conversation with folks in, in various international schools about why, when I've asked them, why does the, why doesn't the teacher, the teaching staff and leadership not look like the students you're serving? And they'll, and some of the answers I, I mean, some it's like, yeah, we, we're working on that. And some answers are, uh, well, they're impossible to find. It's impossible to find people of color um, that oh, are God. qualified to teach or to counsel or to lead. Impossible to find, I'm sorry, is a total BS answer. In 2020, it's a BS answer. Yeah. Like, I would much rather you say, this is what I, I appreciate honesty. If you said, you know what, we haven't made it a priority. Right. <laughs> and they're just like, we, ha we, we have not made a priority. I can rock with that because at least you're being authentic and yeah. you're, you're, you're telling the truth. But for yeah. you to say that you can't find folks and, and, and to think that this doesn't have an impact on the students you're working with, right? Yeah. Because the truth of the matter is whatever country you're living in, unless those students, that is their home country, right? They, right. Are, they are training and are planning to go somewhere else. Right. And you need, to, you need to be able to talk to them about these racial issues that are going on. Because yeah. even, you know, I, it's amazing to me how people with the George Floyd protests were surprised that it kind of bubbled outside of the United States. I'm yeah. like, you're only surprised if you aren't a minority because right. I knew that France had issues. Right. I'm aware that the Netherlands have had issues, right. Right? right? I'm aware that the UK, like, this is not, <laughs> this, 
this is not this you. is a universal but, issue but once again i talk to black expats all the time so i right. also know what's a utopia and what's not and so mm-hmm. to me i just feel like that's part of the education that you're also offering these students is really how to navigate and mm-hmm. how to be the peacemakers and how to stand up for yes. justice and how and how to really push for change when you see when you see something that's wrong but to sort of hide behind it and go i don't really know what to do i'm like eh, there's there are way too many resources out here now that i'm talking like 125 years worth of research eh, you haven't been looking when you're looking at the the near future or the future um I, obviously there's so many unknowns with yeah. covid and everything else going on but what are you what are you hopeful for in the tck space or in the international school world space like what do you what do you hope for? Let's put it that way. Well, one of the um, okay. one of the things I've been watching has been, you know, this reaction society we've had to to the to the protest, and then everyone's attempt at solidarity, especially via social media. And one of the things that I think has been amazing—that <laughs> is sarcastic—that um, I think has been amazing has been black and brown folks calling out companies and organizations and institutions in all sectors of society. Personally, you know, you can't kill something in the dark. You need it to be out in the light. And as uncomfortable as it's gotta be, if you are running a company, if you are a recruiting entity, if you are a school, if you are a support agency, as comfortable as it's got to be to be dragged on social media. I mean, you did put your statement out there. Right. So you know what it is, what it is. Um, I think that we're going to see change because quite, you can't, you can't have that many people calling you out on something. And then you just like, you're like, Oh yeah, I'm not moving. Like you can't, you cannot. And so I do feel if nothing else that a lot of these organizations that support students, that you know send their families that however way they work in the expat space that they really are going to think about race and ethnicity a little bit more intentional to make sure that they're supporting everyone in the community and that i think we're going to move away from from these general blanket statements and i think we're going to move towards more action and i I, i'm in i've been encouraged by seeing students writing out Yes. By seeing teachers and former teachers writing out, by seeing administrators writing out, you know, seeing staff write out. And I, I, I just don't think that if, if we were not in this time in history, that if we didn't have social media, if we didn't have the internet, and if we didn't have these protests, I don't know if we'd see such a quickening of this movement, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think yeah. we would have seen, I think it would have been easy for an administrator to just say, well, once again, you know, we just haven't found anyone that's qualified. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that we're going to see change. And the other thing, folks, once again, I am amazed, have not, <laughs> have not <laughs> they did not realize the level of racism and whatever in, in mm-hmm. <laughs> international schools. I'm like, oh my God, privilege. Yeah. Um, yeah. But one of the things that I, I tell folks is if you're in the majority somewhere, and this is anyone, Yes. You have a lot of power, actually. Like, don't act like you don't have power. And so as parents, you, especially if you have choice of schools, you can ask schools, tell me about your diversity. Tell me about the inclusion. Tell me about how you do to make sure that everybody is part of the story. Like, you 
if you're a part of a sending agency that sends a lot of children and a lot of folks to an institution, you can ask those questions. And I know that there's some pushback in terms of, you know, with local schools, depending on, you know, who, who is going there and who's got what power, whatever. Mm-hmm. But honest to God, if we don't do the hard work to say that everyone should be at the table and these are the different gifts that people bring, it's just going to be perpetuating the same stereotypes. And so I do feel that there are a lot of folks who have a lot more power than they think they have, but they don't realize the power they have. Yes. You know what I mean? Like you can't make people, you can't stop people from being racist, but you can stop them having racist policies. I love that. I find it really inspiring. I hope the people listening will, will find it inspiring and for, the folks that have a lot of the power um, that they kind of get inspired to, to realize the power that they have and, and that they can be responsible consumers of all of the different services families invest in or, or their sending agencies invest in when it comes to living overseas. Amanda, this was so nice. It was a little reunion for us. It's been a while and, and uh, I'm really grateful for all the wisdom that you shared today. Wishing you the very best. Please stay safe and healthy here in the U.S. Will do, will do. And if anyone's looking for me, really easy to find, the Black Expat. <laughs> it's like everything's there, including the information about the Black TCK project. Uh, we just recently, for those who are interested, launched an online directory of Black and Brown blogs, podcasts, and YouTube channels abroad, because I know everyone goes, where do we find these stories? Well, they're all on our website. So if you go to theblackexpat.com, you can find us there or on social media. Fabulous. And I definitely recommend people do the stories, the the Black Expat stories and the video series that you had done was so good. So I know the Black TCK, no pressure, Amanda, but I know the Black TCK (laughs) is going to be so great. So um, thank you so much for doing that and for representing our Black third culture kids in in our community. I cannot wait. And cross-cultural kids cannot wait to, to see how those stories unfold. So thank you so much, Amanda. Thank you. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Don't miss tomorrow. We'll be releasing another episode, and this time it will be with the founder and publisher of Cultures Magazine, Donnie Aldean. We'll have a couple more conversations about race, racism, and equity in the international school system. And then we will move our attention to talk about the role that resilience plays in education, especially during the era of COVID. Any information that we talked about today can be found in the liner notes. And please, if you have comments, questions, suggestions, please reach out. You can reach us at info at seachangementoring.com. That's info at S-E-A-C-H-A-N-G-E mentoring.com. Thank you so much, everybody, and we'll see you at the next episode.